everyone. Thanks for joining the Master Instructor Roundtable this week. I'm Marty Miller here with co-host and dear friend, Wendy Batts. Wendy, how's it going today? It's going great, Marty. How are you? Good. You came up with a great topic, like always, squats. <laughs> and you know, it sounds like a basic topic, but it's a fundamental movement pattern. It's an exercise that a lot of people or movement pattern people truly don't know how to fix or instruct. So I'm excited to jump in today and hopefully... All of you watching, you'll walk out with something that you can put into practice immediately within your programming. Yeah, and I think, too, I wanted just to mention that we are live today. So if you have questions when Marty and I are going through the content, we definitely want you to reach out and put them in the comment box so we can get those questions answered. And I personally think that this is an important topic because while we talk about, you know, people doing squats, it seems like it's like you said, Marty, it's a basic exercise. However, you know, it's an activity of daily living and you think about sitting down into a chair, you've got to be able to get up or getting in and out of your car with. So it's kind of like a rotational squat. So just really understanding that if if somebody says, when I squat, my knee hurts, then obviously you want to do an assessment. And we're going to talk about a lot about that. But you have to ask yourself why. And if they say, well, I can't squat or I don't want to squat, then you've got to say, listen, you're going to do this when you sit on a toilet. You know, you, we've got to work on some of these movement patterns, like you said, because it is just crucial in what we do each and every day. Yeah. When you, you just gave me a flashback. So as we go to the next slide, I'll tell my quick story. So I was at a private country club training and I was doing a lot of, you know, squats, different phases of training, of course. And a uh, Harvard grad orthopedic surgeon came up and goes, you got to stop everyone from squatting. I said, doc, let's talk in a minute. Go in my office. He sits down. I said, you know what? It's, it's too loud in here. Let's go over here. I moved him around three, four times, made him sit down, stand up, sit down, stand up. He goes, I thought we were going to talk about this. And I said, doc, you just squatted four times. And you're telling me you don't want me to teach people how to squat? And he like paused for a second. And we went into knee extension, open chain. And he's like, oh my God, he's like, for years, clients have come in and told me squats hurt their knees. I never even thought about what you're telling me here. It was a loaded bad squat that hurt people's knees. It wasn't a fundamental movement pattern. And he understood that this is crucial, essential, but it's funny how I had to do that basic kind of reverse engineering to a Harvard grad orthopedic to get him to understand that, yes, get everyone moving and fix everybody's squats. Yeah. And I think that's one thing too, you know, and I, and I say that because I actually had a client tell me same thing. Their doctor said that they don't want them lunging or squatting. And I'm like, okay, well, we need to pick up this piece of paper or I dropped my pen on purpose. Like, Hey, would you mind grabbing that for me? Again, they have to lunge down to do that. Or, you know, let's sit down. And, and I think just showing them that, listen, I'm not going to load your back with heavy weight because sometimes, especially people that aren't familiar with the gym, they think that a loaded back squat is how you're going to squat. When in all reality, we need to look at how they're moving and then fix the quality of their movement. So therefore, we reduce the stress of the knees. Mm -hmm. And Marty, you and I did an Instagram live today on NAS and performance, actually talking about the foot and ankle and how if the foot and ankle, and we're going to talk a lot about this too, but if the foot and ankle doesn't have the right amount of you know um, movement and the hip doesn't either, it can affect the knee. The knee to me is the one of the not so smartest joints of the body because the ankle and the hip are both tell it what to do and it's just stuck in the middle. So that's why when you're looking at this slide, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to go over just a brief a bit of the anatomy because we all need to make sure we're on the same page. We're going to talk about the importance of form and technique and the fundamentals behind it and how it, it correlates with most things that we do. 
we'll definitely talk about some of the common flaws that we see via the assessment. And then we're going to just kind of give just some quick exercises. If we talked about all the different exercises you could do to perfect your squat, we'd be here all day. Um, so let's just go ahead and dive on in. Great idea. So when we look at a squat, when you and I know this, and I think we've got to just kind of reiterate it real quickly, is what are the prime movers and what's going on within the squat? So the squat is designed really, truly to hit the glutes. Yes, you're going to get quad complex, and then you're going to get calves. And people are like, well, what do you mean by calves? So when the picture comes back up, you're going to see that um, image at the bottom of the squat. So when you look at it, he's a, this person's in hip flexion and knee flexion, but look at the ankle. It's in dorsiflexion. So as I come up out of the squat, even though I'm in a closed chain, as I increase my knee extension and my hip extension, I'm also increasing plantar flexion, which means the calf complex has to work. So that this is a multi-joint exercise. It's phenomenal. And I'm going to leave it here. I don't think we need to get into it too much more, but you will not see me because I'm not a bodybuilder. I'm just trying to get through everyday life. I'm not going to do a squat that focuses primarily on the quads because here's the thing I can tell you. If you're engaging your glutes in a closed chain exercise where your foot's on the ground, guess what has to be working at the same time? Your quads. But I can isolate the quads and not get the glutes as involved. So for me, that's where I'm always going to focus on an exercise that really targets the glutes. I'm going to get a lot of quad in there. And then kind of the hidden secret here, I believe, is the calf complex. So when if you want to go into the joints, I'll turn that over to you. Yeah, I mean, you pretty much nailed it. I mean, as you see everything that's on the left here, when you're going at deflection, we've got ankle, knee and hip. And, you know, when when you're doing the assessment process, we look at the ankle, the hip and the knee when someone's doing their overhead squat, because we want to make sure that we have those parallel lines. And the reason why we do this and that image is perfect is if the torso and the shin are, um, you know, parallel and they can get into a really good depth. I'm not going to stop someone and say, oh, you can only go to chair height if they have a little bit more flexion available. The problem is, is most people are restricted at their hip or at their ankle. So therefore, they're pushing past a limit that causes them to compensate. And if you can have someone ideally squat and you've got good available range of motion, we tell everyone in every exercise full available range of motion for you. Because my available range of motion might be different than Marty's or our producers or somebody else that's squatting next to me. And it's not a competition of how low can I go? It's a competition of how can I do it correctly? And so we look for those parallel lines. It's equal weight distribution. It's going to be the safest on the joints. And it's also going to enhance the prime mover, you know, which is the whole purpose of us doing an exercise is to get the prime movers firing at the right time in the right plane of motion. Right. And, and I think two things just for me to add there, when you could have both compensation at the hip and the ankle, mm -hmm. even though I'm working on it. And also, you know, you made that great point, full available range of motion. And I'm going to add, as we always do, comma, without compensation, because somebody will like, well, I can get lower. Well, at what cost? Mm -hmm. Right. So that's where it's full available range of motion without compensation. Yes. And as we go through and we look at the different, um, you know, the different things or thoughts about a squat, if we go to the next slide, you're going to see that, you know, you want to teach someone and set someone up. And Marty, you and I get this all the time. We want to set someone up to perform a squat correctly. So when you are going through and doing your assessments, Marty, you have gotten this a thousand times. We get it in every workshop that we teach. Why do you want to set someone up correctly? Because then they know what you want. 
And the reason that we do that and we set them up in the five kinetic chain checkpoints, we say, I want you to stand with your feet shoulder to hip width apart, toes pointed forward. We want the kneecaps over the second and third toe. We want the hips in neutral and we want our shoulders in neutral and our head in alignment. So like if I turned you to the side, your ear, your shoulder, your hip, your knee and your ankle would all make a straight line. The reason we do this, guys, and the reason why it's important to start that way is because that's where your body should be. The joints are at um, the right available range of motion when you're standing in an upward position. And then therefore we can see where deviations occur. If you let someone stand the way that they want to stand or squat any way that they want, then at that point, we know that we're going to not have a starting point and we can't see what changes were made. So no matter if the client knows what you're looking for, which you're not, you're just saying, hey, I want you to start in this position and then I want you to go into a chair level and I show them, this is what I want you to do. Raise your hands and then go into this. When they do that, if they don't have that available range of motion at the joint, they will compensate. So no matter how hard they try, they're going to compensate because they don't have that to give. And so we're looking for proper execution from the start of it, meaning the five kinetic chain checkpoints, and then seeing what happens through the middle. So therefore, as they're moving and we're doing what we call a dynamic assessment because they're moving, then we can see then at that moment, how do they end? And then when they come back up, where were the changes too? So you're constantly writing all that down. Well, that's for an assessment. However, I don't want that to change when I put them in their workout. I still want to set them up correctly. So therefore my prime movers are actually working and I'm not utilizing a synergist or something that shouldn't be activating during that particular pattern. Nailed it as always, Wendy. So for those <laughs> of you just joining myself, Marty Miller with Wendy Bats on today's Master Instructor Roundtable, we're talking about the power of squats. So first we went through what the motions are, why now we want to work on a squat. And now we're going to get into some more details about squat basics and some compensations and all other types of things you may see. So let's move forward here. And speaking of compensations, I'll jump in here. You will see a lot of stuff. And, you know, one day I'm going to become a, a great social media content provider here. I love the ones where they don't talk and they just show their face like they're shocked. And then they look over it, whatever, and they show silly stuff. We could do this just with the squat exercise. It is outrageous what some people do when they are you know squatting so here's some of the basic ones is feet turn out and i've heard this so much well why does it matter really and you know i'm trying to get this and every excuse under the sun and guess what here's how i look at it i just ordered new tires for my car because i like my car it's expensive to fix and i want it to be safe in my car, if I see indicator lights, what's the first thing the majority of reasonable people are going to do? Go, well, that's not normal. Let me check into that. But yet they will sit here and argue with us to kingdom come when they're like, nah, it's not that big of a deal, is it? Well, yeah, yeah, it really is. So if your feet are turning out, that's not the only issue you're going to have. Your knee is probably going to adduct and or internally rotate. What's going to happen now in your pelvis and the external rotation of your femur? You're, you might have, you know, uh, something going on with your sacral tubulus ligament into your SI joint all the way up. It matters. So I'm not going to go through each bullet point after that, but yes, all of these things matter. So common uh, would be the low back arch and round. Think of the pressure in your lumbar spine in either position. You're not neutral. You don't have your internal weight belt controlling your pelvis you're going to add more stress to your lumbar spine. I talked about the knee adducting, excessive forward lean, 
And then the depth there, you're going to have an anterior tilt or a posterior tilt. Everyone will end up with a posterior tilt at some point if you go beyond the available level of hip flexion you have. And then you can see what happens at the neck with the extension forward head. And I remember, Wendy, and I'm going to kick it back to you here, is when I competed in powerlifting, it was head up, look up. And, you know, so think about what happened to my neck, my lumbopelvic hip complex. Thank goodness I've not done a bar squat, even though I squat <laughs> a lot. I bet you I have not put a bar on my back in over 15 to 20 years. Yeah, it's been a while for me as well. I do it well enough. It's not, no, no, thank you. Yeah. Um, I use a safety bar if I'm going to do it or a hex bar, but um, I would like to, to also remind everyone that when you start looking up and, and unfortunately our coaches taught us that back in the day when you were Marty and I's age, you know, you're sitting there in the gym and you're working with a strength coach. They will tell you to focus on something in the ceiling, like look in this area and then you want to squat down. That way you're focused on your movement pattern. And while that sounds like really good cues and really good things to think about to help better my movement, whenever you look in an upward position and, and we will tell you as a cue, eyes should be level with your chest. So as you go down into that perpendicular um, or a parallel line, so you're going down moving, you know, kind of at an angle, your, your head should be in neutral with your spine. If you look up, there's something called your pelvo-ocular reflex. And as soon as you look in an upward position, that would automatically adjust your hips into an anterior pelvic tip because tilt because your eyes and your hips, they work together. And so as soon as you do this, your, your pelvis adjusts to that newfound, you know, um, kind of focal point, if you will. It happens biomechanically. It's like just the way that the body works. Um, and it's the reflex of why we tell people, make sure your eyes stay in line with your chest. So therefore we can maintain really good positioning of the spine, whether it's loaded or not. So I think that one's just a key one. I always want to tell people because, you know, even though you don't think about it, people will end up going lower and then going to a rounded back. But it's also too to think about what's happening to where's your kinetic chain checkpoint at that point. It's all messed up, <laughs> completely messed up. Not good. Nope. Or jacked up as you like to say. So as we I was going to say that. Here, I was I I I knew I could tell. So I'm like, I got it for him. Mm -hmm. So the common cues are leading is compensation. Depth is a big thing. Can lead to compensation based on muscle imbalance or basic human movement science. Like I said, the pelvis can only maintain neutral for so long and then it'll have to, you know, dump underneath the the fixed femur. So you you can you cannot do the butt to grass type of squat, I'll keep it nice in a neutral spine position. You cannot. However, do I do those type of real deep squats? Yeah, when I'm doing my yoga and there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm not loaded, right? So our body is designed to get low for people when they would do gardening or work. Yeah, your, you, your body is allowed to do that, but I would never load my spine when I know my pelvis is already dumped underneath, right? So it's just not safe. So we just got to be careful with that. So the pistol squats is an example. You can see his uh, thoracic spine is completely flexed and he's in a posterior tilt, which means the adductor magnus is going to have to work harder to get him out of that squat. The rear to floor, that's kind of the tush to grass that I was talking about. Yeah. And the thing is, is, you know, my, my question that when people are like, but I like to do pistol squats. Well, most people can't do it because they don't have the amount of dorsiflexion that they need to do that without really compensating. So the picture that you see, that individual is actually executing a, a pistol squat for what it is. 
But my question to, to this individual or anybody that does them is why my husband likes to do them to show me that he still can, because to him, it's like, oh, look, I can still do this. And I, on the other hand, don't do it as well or I can't go as low. And so then it's just a competition between us just being married. Um, however, you know, yeah, in the gym, do it. I've seen it in action. I know. Right. Um, yeah, we've, we've always compete with each other. So, so the thing is, is like, do, is it something that I would program for my clients? And the answer is no, because there's no benefit to them. If I really want to focus on their quads and their glutes and their calves, I'm going to maintain proper positioning and load them as heavy as they can, they can control. And so, you know, again, all to their own, but if I'm really going to also stress this, why not do a single leg squat touchdown with a weight? Uh, and then I'm working contralaterally. I'm working on the balance. I'm working my prime movers. And I know at that point, I'm also working a lot of the subsystems that I need to do. That's going to translate in what I do daily. So just something to think about. We, we put this out there for you to make the, the right decisions. However, just realize after a certain point to Marty's point, you will go into a posterior pelvic tilt. Yep. So now we're going to look at the ankle dorsiflexion. Critical, critical, you know, start of it of working on good human movement. So you'll see the picture in the top there in the black and white is they're measuring it with the human protractor, the goniometer. So from that fixed position, 90 degrees, you should have an additional 15 to 20 degrees. And I would say I've measured people in the negatives, if you can believe oh, that, yeah. which means they can't even get to that neutral 90 position. That's not as common, but I would say the majority of people I measure are 10 degrees or under. Maybe that doesn't sound like a lot, like well, 10 degrees, 15 degrees, 20 degrees. Well, it's 50 to 100% of a deficit, right? You got to look at the percentage. So if you're supposed to have 20 degrees and you only have 10, you got a 50% deficit. So like, or, you know, that or 10 degrees, that's 100% deficit. That's not good. So then we have to look at the flexibility and mobility, the calf, soleus, get those tissues um, softened up, more pliable through all of our mobility techniques that you learn. Doing some deep squats like I will do in my yoga poses is a great way to get that mobility. And then activation, how do you strengthen the other side? The anterior tibialis, you can isolate it with tubing and things like that. Or you can do the uh, walks that you see here, uh, heel walks. There's a lot of ways to do it, but you just can't ignore it and think that you're going to have good human movement. Yeah. And, and you said you, when you said that it's not as common as you think, I mean, I'll tell you this, most of my basketball players, especially after a game will come in as, yeah. as a negative. With our and, yes. And, you know, and you think guys, you're, ideally you have to have 10 to walk and um, walk properly. Anyway, ideally you want 10 to 15, but then if you're going to add a sport and you're going to add all these other um, high impact type things, or, you know, you really want to have really good um, dorsiflexion. And if you look at people's feet and I challenge you like at the grocery store, because this is where I look and see everyone's like the way that they're standing. But most people walk with their feet slightly turned out or they're standing with their feet slightly turned out. This is very, very common. And the reason their feet externally rotate or turn out is because they are lacking this range of motion. And, you know, that's one of the beauties of the corrective exercise specialists that NASM has. They teach you to look deeper into something more than just the overhead squat. They teach you to look into the, the ways that you can look at someone's mobility. So then you can determine, are you spending more time foam rolling or using percussion devices and then stretching because it's a restriction of the joint? Or do they have really good range of motion? You didn't actually measure it with a goniometer, but they can do this mobility positioning 
fine. It's a weakness issue. And so therefore it starts taking the guesswork out. I think it's really important. I say this all the time, go through the corrective exercise, but your foot and ankle are the first thing that hit the ground. And so if you're lacking that range of motion, the rest of the kinetic chain will some way or somehow be, um, uh, th there's going to be multiple issues up the kinetic chain. Right. No question about it. So key things, stay focused on foot and ankle and you're going to see great results. Now we move up the kinetic chain. You still need good knee flexion, right? So the ideal range as you'll see measured here is 135 degrees. Not that you have to measure that, but just we want to give you the anatomical positioning so you know that. So once again, it's great to learn how to use the goniometer because two to three or four degrees on some of these will make a big difference. So then from a flexibility mobility, obviously we're always going to do our soft tissue work, but you're really targeting the rectus femoris here. That's the one that is going to limit that knee, you know, keep you from having good knee flexion. So that's one of the stretches that you need to do there. There's different ways to do it. And then the activation is just your basic or progressed, right? There's a lot of them, but let's not get overcomplicated. Let's get those glute bridges in. Absolutely. Well done. The good bridge here and there. <laughs> And then again, we have to look at hip flexion. So when you saw the anatomical position that you saw with our skeleton in the very beginning, you saw the importance of ankle, knee, and hip. So ideal range of motion is 110 to 120 degrees. Again, if you don't have a goniometer, you can do like the Thomas test. There's a lot of ways on the mobility side that you can look at how someone's position is. And all the Thomas test measurement is, it's, it's a way actually that I stretch my clients manually um, on the table is they put the top of their tailbone at the end of, end of a table. They hold one knee and then they lay backwards. And then you can just look at someone to see does their, their um, quad, is it parallel to the table or does it you know come up? And most people that are super tight in their hips, they can't get their their um, their quad and their hip at a level position of the table. Or if they do, sometimes they go into abduction. So their knee goes in an outward position. You can tell a lot of what's happening there because is it your TFL, your psoas, your rectus femoris? But then at that point, too, that allows me to say, OK, I know I need to get a really good stretch here for lacking really good range of motion. Once you get a good stretch, then think about activation. We want to make sure too, that you're doing exercises such as like the dead bugs, stability ball, um, knee tuck. There's a lot of different things that you can do because remember, even if a muscle is overactive, it's still weak. And so we really want to focus more on the other side to get better range of motion. However, both sides of that joint is weak. And so you don't want to just completely ignore what's happening on the front, but you want to get good available range of motion truly activate the opposing side and then start kind of doing, I always do um, ratios, like maybe one, one to three or something along those lines, meaning exercise choices of what I'm doing from the overactive and underactive muscles. And I want to ensure that I'm doing more activation on the underactive than over. However, those don't need to be forgotten. No, great, great advice, Wendy, for sure. That's some of those details people forget. All right. So as we move on here, then we talk about the neutral spine. So that's what's holding the weight, especially as you go into the higher phases of training, right? As I said, uh, that's why I don't do backloaded squats because it's hard for me to get in perfect position. So your ASIS, which is your anterior superior iliac spine, the little two bumps on the front of your hip, and then right behind there on the back of your hip, right across in a sense, is your PSIS, your posterior superior iliac spine. They need to be at the same level, right? So if you look at the bottom picture and then the bottom picture in that, you're going to see that that pelvis is level on the picture above it. You're going to see an anterior pelvic tilt 
where the water, if it was a bowl, would be tipping out of the front of the bowl. Posterior tilt, it'd be tipping out of the back of the bowl. So again, when we talk about a real building ability, flexibility and mobility, you've got the anterior pelvic tilt. You've got to go after that hip flexor complex. It's going to be overactive. Activation would be the opposite side. We're then going to have the hamstring curl and bridges. Then if they had the other uh, overactive um, positioning, the posterior pelvic tilt, their hamstrings would be overactive. You flip that around and then you would do the soft tissue work there. And then great exercises, just like you just showed not too long ago, would be something like a bridge with a march, the dead bug, single leg step up, et cetera. Well said. I try. <laughs> so again, we were thinking about different exercises and we've done these types of exercises before on multiple um, master instructor roundtables that we've done because they're good. And the thing is, is I think oftentimes we try to get so creative in our programming that we forget the basics. And the most important is to make sure that the right muscle is firing at the right time with the right amount of depth that someone can control and that we're ensuring that they can maintain proper alignment. So again, Marty talked about the importance of why the feet need to be straight and what we're working on. We're working on proper movement patterns. We're not working for a sport. We're not doing power lifting. We're not doing Olympic lifting. That may require something completely different. We're looking at health. We're looking at the way the body should be focused um, or working and thinking about what is it the best position to execute things for those prime movers that we're trying to target. So when we're looking at how do we work on these squat patterns, use a ball, put a ball, not on the low back. You definitely don't want to do that because oftentimes people start to arch their back into that ball. So put the ball like more closer to their um, shoulder blade area, have their glutes kind of go down towards the, um, the crease of the wall. And so therefore, again, you're trying to help them maintain those parallel lines. That ball gives you extra dorsiflexion. And so that's one thing that Marty and I are huge advocates for cables because the cable also does something along those lines. So that's one of the easiest things to do is start with just body weight and a ball and work on, on depth and range of motion. If you want to use the TRX, love the TRX. Some people don't have that available. Some people don't have a ball available. So what do I need to do? We can work on our glutes. That's when we talk about the floor and the ball bridges. Are, is one better than the other? The answer to that is no. If you don't have a ball, do it on the floor. If you have a ball and you want to use it, use it. However, the ball gives you a, a better range of motion to go down into, so it's harder to control. It's also, you need to make sure your client doesn't fall off the ball. So there are those considerations as well. The cable squat, like I just said, I mean, it's one of my favorites that I use very often because they have to also have core stabilization and control of their trunk so they don't go flying forward with the weight. Um, heel taps where your foot is on like let's say a small box and you're kind of going down and you're tapping one foot so again they have to almost do like a single leg squat you can have them hold on to something but they're just tapping down and then coming up the single leg step up of course again we're looking for those parallel lines when they're approaching their box and stepping up we're making sure they come into full hip extension because people will stay hip flexed we're going to make sure they can maintain that. And then they'll slowly come down. And then we would advance them into a single leg squat and then a single leg squat touchdown if we choose. So again, this is a way that you can start simple and make it more advanced. But you, as you can see right there, I have given you seven different things that you can do. So that's seven different workout patterns if your client can handle it. If they didn't do very well with the ball squat and you taught them the patterning, maybe the next time you do a ball squat, but then they start to hold load. 
So, I mean, I have my professional athletes do ball squats still to this day. We may hold the last one for a minute. I may have them hold 45 pounds in each hand. I can do a lot of different variations. What I really care about is their positioning and their um, available range of motion to do it correctly. Yeah, progressions are there, right? I've, like I said, I haven't done a back squat in probably 20 years and I've not been struggling to figure out what I need to do for my squat patterning, no matter what phase of training I'm in. So great information, Wendy. I think hopefully there was a lot of little touch points that people are like, you know what, I can, you know, take that or take this and, and look at things a little differently. So as we start to wrap things up, some of the key takeaways, this would go for anything. Know the muscles and the patterns you're targeting. The better you know your functional anatomy, the better you're going to be able to designing programs. So highly encourage the CES. Proper setup and movement is key for ideal execution. If you're not setting somebody up, they're not going to be able to, to do the exercise correctly. Obviously, assessments, if you're talking to Wendy or I, are always going to be in there. Assessments are key. You're not assessing, you're guessing. Work on areas to help establish proper range of motion. You've got to get those joints, uh, the ability to move better. That'll help improve everything right from there. Muscle synergies, firing patterns, et cetera. Always understand what the next regressions are. And you could say progressions, but regress when people start to get fatigued and their form and technique are not ideal. It's either good or it's not. And then remember the OPT model, as we love to say, is always your best friend. It's got all the answers right there for you. Absolutely. So Marty, I mean, I, again, I love this topic. We've seen it on our social media and on different ways to set up. We talk all the time about the importance of different squat patterns. Of course, we have the squat in our overhead assessment. You can see it's important for daily living. So guys, just think that it doesn't have to be this heavy bar in order to execute and get benefit out of your workout. Mm -hmm. You're only going to benefit what you can control. And so again, that is probably the key takeaway that I just want to say. And I would say it over and over again, if you can do it correctly and you, as Marty would say, own the right, then at that point, progress it, make it heavy, load it up, load it the way that it's going to be best for your client. And every client's going to be different. So if you choose a bar, all the power to you. If you use different types of bar, that's great. Dumbbells, whatever. But change it up anyway. Don't always do the same thing and you're going to have better results long term. But if you have questions, I mean, you can always find me um, via email. So you can email me at wendy.bats at nasm.org or you can find me on Instagram at wendy.bats13. My info will be right here. It is dr.martymiller72 for Instagram. And then our, our my email address is marty.miller at nasm.org. So, Wendy, great topic. Glad you brought it up. Great uh, work on the, the presentation there. Covered all the key points. And for those of you that joined in, hope you have some takeaways. And most importantly, we absolutely look forward to seeing you next week on the Master Instructor Roundtable. <music>